We're going to turn to John's Gospel tonight, and um, we are restarting another series from today, which leads us all the way to Easter. And um, if you have been, you know, coming along for some time, you would have noticed that we started a series on the Gospel of John back in summer, I think it was last year, and we're still going with it. So it's been, it's been a pretty long series. But we've taken it in chunks, if you've noticed. So the first series, it lasted for a few weeks, we took um, the first half of the Gospel of John and covered the events of Jesus and what he did. So some of his signs and wonders. The second chunk that we took was still the first half of the book, but we looked at Um, who Jesus is. There are seven I am statements or declarations in the Gospel of John that we looked at to try and discover, okay, who is this this man Jesus? And now we're restarting the, the John series again, but we're taking the second half of John's Gospel, which is essentially the last week of Jesus's life, which is known as the Passion Week. And This series will lead us all the way up to Easter, which is only a couple of months away. Isn't that kind of crazy? Already we're in February. We're going to turn to John chapter 12. Um, Six days before the Passover. So the Passover was on Friday. Um, So I think this is either Saturday or Sunday, um, if I get my dates right. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had just raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. Martha was Lazarus' sister. Whilst Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them, then Mary, Lazarus' other sister, took about a half pint of pure nard, kind of the size of a Coke can, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet And wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he heard about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Or in the NLT version, it says that it was intended that she should prepare my body for the day of my burial. And that's sort of where I want to get to with this message. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, the walking miracle, whom he had just raised from the dead. So the chief priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Uh, If you're writing notes tonight, which you you can if you like, 80% of people will write notes in church, go to heaven, don't know what happens to the other 20, but it's a joke, you can laugh. We can have some fun in here tonight as well. Um, If you're writing notes and you could entitle this message something like his preparation, Jesus' 
Jesus' preparation. That's what we're talking about tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, we ask that you would speak to us tonight. Lord, lead us, guide us, illuminate uh, your word to us in a fresh way, God. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. Jesus, take center stage tonight. Be lifted up. For when you are lifted up, you draw all men unto yourself. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, are you ready? Of course you have, right? Are you ready? Um, are you ready? I mean, I've, I've said it often when I'm waiting for my friends, you know, trying to get out. There's always that one person who takes the longest time. You're like, are you ready yet? You know, it's a phrase that we use often, isn't it? Are you ready? We hear it a lot. I think I uh, heard this phrase this morning. Somebody said to me, are you ready? And I was like, well, I think so. Um, are you ready? It's a phrase that comes out from a lot of us, isn't it? And it has to do with preparation, readiness. Um, in fact, I put in some preparation for today. No, I didn't just turn up and um, talk for 30 minutes without knowing what to talk about. I put in some preparation. In fact, 10 to 15 hours worth of preparation this week of, of, of thinking about what I was going to talk about today, of, of reading about what I was going to talk about, then putting an outline together. Uh, I then sort of formulated and crafted my thoughts together and put them in um, an order in a succinct way that it might somehow make sense. And then, you know, put like transition statements together to link one thought to the next thought. So you might get something out of it today. There was preparation, 10 to 15 hours of preparation that went into 30 minutes of speaking today. The English rugby team, they put in a lot of preparation for the World Cup last year, didn't they? But it didn't work out. Too soon? I could, obviously, you don't find that funny at all, did you? But I can say that because, you know, we, we did hopelessly um, as well, so it's okay. Four years of training in season and out of season for one moment. Of course, the Olympics is coming up this year and we're looking forward to the Olympics, aren't we, in Japan. And the amazing thing about the Olympics is that hundreds of athletes from all over the world spend four years of their lives training, going to the physio, going to the doctor, refining their diets, are doing everything that they possibly can to prepare themselves for one moment. Preparation is key in life, isn't it? Life is full of activity, and to every activity, there is preparation. The same could be said for the Christian life. The Christian life is an active life. Remember what Jesus said at Matthew 28, when he was standing before all of his disciples on the mount, before he ascended up into heaven with all of the angels around him, what did he say? Stop. That's not what he said, was it? Did he say halt? He didn't say that either, did he? Wait, lie down, chillax, take a chill pill. You know, I've done my thing. Everyone just relax. Sit back on the couch, recline. That's not what he said, was it? What did he say? Go, didn't he? Go into all of the world 
and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is an active life. There is movement to it. There is motion uh, to it. It's not a couch potato kind of a life, is it? <laughs> uh, and into every activity, you could say, in the Christian life, in the same way that we go about our activities in everyday life, there is preparation required in the Christian life. And there is a principle, you could say, of preparation that weaves itself throughout the narrative of the Bible, and we can see it in lots of different characters. How about Moses? God prepared Moses for 40 years amongst sheep to lead his people out of Egypt. God prepared the Israelites in, at Mount Sinai in the desert for 40 years in order to bring them into the promised land. God prepared Samuel in the house of Eli to make him prophet and a seer to the nation of Israel. God prepared David in the caves of Adullam to make him the greatest king of Israel. And God prepared Jesus for 30 years, for three years of full-time ministry. God prepares us for his plans and his purposes. In this text here, there is a sense that Jesus knows where he is going. He is talking about his burial. He has been explicit up until this point about his coming death. He knows where he is going. In fact, even after this conversation at the Last Supper, he would continue to be explicit about where he is going. There is an immense sense of purpose that Jesus carries. He is living a purpose-driven life. You know that God has plans and purposes for you? Jeremiah 27 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. God has purpose for your life. God has plans for your life. Do you believe that? In the same way that Jesus had an immense sense of purpose, God has put purpose on you. God has laid out plans for you. And in this text here, we see that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus. Now, what does anointing and, and preparation have to do with each other? Because she anoints his feet and Jesus says, she has done this for the day of my burial. Or in the NLT, like I said, she has done this to prepare my body for the day of my burial. He speaks about his purpose. He knows game day is coming. And this is a moment of preparation for Jesus here. We can see that in six days' time, he is headed towards the grave. He knows this. And he says, this is the moment that you are preparing my body for the grave yet the anointing and preparation, they have something in common here. What is the anointing? The anointing is the equipping and the enabling work of God, you can say. When Jesus started his, his ministry, he stood up in front of the synagogue, didn't he? And uh, there's a story where he stood up in front of all these Jews in his hometown, and um, he, he read out a scripture from the Old Testament from Isaiah 60. And these were the words that he read. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. What does the anointing do? 
He has anointed me to. He has anointed me for a specific reason. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's good favor. And you know, a few verses after that, he says, in your presence, this reading is fulfilled. The anointing is the enabling and the empowering and the equipping work of God. It enables us to accomplish and fulfill that which God has purposed and planned for us to do. That is the work of the anointing on our lives. Did you know that you have an anointing? You have an anointing. You might not have been anointed with physical oil like Jesus was, but you do have an anointing. How do you have an anointing? Well, if you are a Christian today, if you've said yes to Jesus and if you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who anoints us for his plans and for his purposes, or in other words, his service. Jesus says here, Isaiah 60, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to set the captives free. If you're a Christian in this place today, you need to know that you have an anointing. And that anointing is on your life for a specific purpose. It's on your life for a plan. It's on your life in order that you might accomplish and fulfill all that God has purposed for you to do. Do you believe that? It cuts through that which you couldn't cut through otherwise. It breaks the yoke. It is the enabling. It is the equipping of God. It is the empowering of God on your life. There is something powerful about the anointing. And the anointing has got to do with what God is preparing for you. God has purposes. He has plans for you. He has great things in store for you. And I believe that he's preparing all of us for what he has in store for us. And that anointing is at the heart of, what, of how God prepares us. Now, like an athlete prepares their body for a tournament, a game, a, um, the Olympics, a World Cup, whatever it may be. They go to great lengths to prepare themselves. The Christian, too, can prepare themselves for what God has in store for us. Might not necessarily be preparing our body, but it is preparing our hearts. In this story here, I think that Mary has something to show us or Mary has something to teach us, Mary has something to inspire us about the act of worship. There is something about worship that prepares our hearts for what God has in store for us. I'm not just talking about singing songs on a Sunday morning for 20 minutes. Uh, That's not just what worship is. Worship, that is an expression of worship, but worship is much more than just singing songs to God on a Sunday morning. Listen to how Paul puts it. He writes, offer your lives, in Romans 12, offer your lives as living sacrifices to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
For Paul, worship is not just hymns and praise songs and the latest Hillsong track. Worship encompasses the entirety of our lives, how we live before God, how we interact before God, how, how we commune with him, how we relate to him. This has got to do with the entirety of our Christian lives. In fact, the word worship comes from the word worth. Worth-ship. What is it that you worth? Do you worth Jesus? Is he worthy of your praise? Is he worthy of your whole life? Is he worthy to give yourself to? Here's three things that Mary can inspire us in around our worship. And this is in the context of preparation. Firstly, Mary worshipped extravagantly. It's an amazing thing what Mary does. Jesus has obviously done a great thing and there's this dinner which is being set up in his honor. We don't know which house it is. Potentially Simon the leper, Mark says, um, in honor of Jesus and what he's done and it's an amazing thing. Oh my gosh, Jesus, you've just raised Lazarus from the dead. Isn't this cool? This is what Mary does. She takes the thing that was most precious to her. She takes the spike nard. Now, this is no Chanel number five, okay? This is way better, okay? Way more expensive. Um, this is a plant spike nard, which is from the Himalayas, okay? Um, from Nepal and India. And this was one of the most valuable resources in the Middle East that was traded between India, Nepal, and the Middle East. And this was the perfume of kings and queens, princes and princesses. I mean, you were proper Gucci if you wore spike nard, okay? Everybody knew you were wearing spike nard because the fragrance was so distinct and unique. Somehow Mary gets this spike nard, whether it was a dowry or an inheritance of the family, she has it. Judas, he's really good with money, okay? He's like a banker, let's say, okay? He's, he's a banker. Um, and, and, and he knows how much this thing is worth. He's like, this is a year's wages, okay? This is 30,000 pounds to put it in today's you know, terms. She takes her years, this year's worth of wages, potentially the family's inheritance, and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus. This is an incredibly extravagant act in which Mary is expressing towards Jesus. I think Mary is inspiring us today in how we can prepare ourselves before God and how we can prepare our hearts before God in the way that we don't need to hold anything back from him. We can give all that we got. Jesus is not just asking for portions of our lives. Jesus is asking for the entirety of our lives. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all of your ways and he will direct your paths. There is something about the allness of yourself. And when you give that to God, it's amazing how the gospel is able to really take root in your life and work. In fact, I would say, go so far to say that the gospel will not work for you if you are only prepared to offer Jesus portions of your life. It doesn't work that way. 
Jesus says, give me all or give me nothing. It's like the mafia. We go all in. This is what Jesus asks from us. He says, I've given you everything. Now I'm asking you for everything. Mary's gift was extravagant. And this is what happens in this dinner party. Judas sees this and he's like, mmm, mmm. I don't like that. This is a waste. Why couldn't we give that to the poor? I remember when I was growing up and I was about 12 years old and we were going to this church and um, I remember seeing my mum when an offering container came around. She would get out these notes of cash, like these $20 bills. And I was like, what a waste. Why are you putting all of that money into the offering container? I'm getting nothing over here. Where's my pocket money? Why would you waste it on the church? This is stupid. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Often family members are the biggest culprits, aren't they? They see your devotion, your, your commitment, your dedication, your adoration, and they say, what a waste. Why are you wasting all of your time on that church business? Why are you wasting your time on that serving stuff? Why are you wasting your money on giving to church? I mean, this has gone too far. This is, this is a waste. You're wasting your life. But the gospel promises us that a life spent on Jesus is never a life wasted. Paul puts it like this in, in uh, Corinthians, I believe. Our lives are a sweet fragrance rising up to God. God sees your sacrifice, your dedication, your worship, your adoration, not as a waste like a Judas, but Jesus sees it as precious. The problem with Judas is that he couldn't see the worth in Jesus. In fact, only a week later, he would sell Jesus for a thousand quid. And a week earlier, Mary had given 30,000 pounds and poured it out onto the feet of Jesus and said, you're worth it. I'll give you everything. Now, what am I saying? Am I saying that we need to empty out our bank accounts tomorrow to me and give it all over to SPS? That's not what I'm saying. Mary demonstrates to us what it means to offer an extravagant and precious gift to Jesus. What is that thing for you? What is that thing that you can't let go of? What is that thing in your life? Maybe you're holding back compartments of your life and saying, God, I've given you all this stuff, but I'm just holding this back for myself. And Jesus is saying, it won't work. Give it over. I want to do something extraordinary in your life, but you've got to give me everything. Maybe the most precious thing to you is your heart, and maybe it hurts too bad to give it away. But Mary can hopefully inspire us today to give everything that we got to Jesus. She worshipped extravagantly. Secondly, she worshipped responsively. Not responsibly, responsively. 
Jesus had come into this town. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. He had done something. His power had been demonstrated in this tiny little village. And Mary now, as a response to what Jesus has done, is coming with her gift and she is offering it to Jesus. We should never get this order mixed up. The gospel is always that God gave first and we, as a response, come to the table for what God has already done for us. It's a bit like this paramedic sort of language, isn't it? Oftentimes they turn up to a scene and somebody's unconscious and, and they use that term, don't they? They say, are they responding? You know, a few pumps and that sort of thing. Okay, they are responding. No, they're not responding. Are they awake? Are they not awake? And this is, I guess, the language of the gospel as well. God has given everything and the entirety of our Christian lives becomes a response to the grace of God. Oftentimes, responses aren't that pretty. They're not that clean cut. They're not that, that perfect. They're not, they're not sometimes so welcome in church. Do you remember the, the, um, the prodigal son who returned? And he's returning as a response to, to, waste, to wasting all his wealth and all of that stuff. He turns up at his father's health and he, house and he's like, he's messy and he's like smelly and he's like got no shoes on and he's, he's wearing rags and his father puts his arms around him and welcomes him back. Or, or as David welcomes the ark into Jerusalem and he dances almost naked before the Lord. It's not pretty, it's not cute, it's not clean cut, it's, it's a little bit messy, but, but, it's, but it's responsive. It's, it's, it's God, oh my gosh, look at what you've done. I, I can't help myself. Here, here am I. Here's my worship. Here's my adoration. Here's my declaration. Here I am. Mary inspires us today in the way in which we respond to God. Thirdly, Mary worshipped voluntarily. Mary worshipped extravagantly. She worshipped responsively. And thirdly, she worshipped voluntarily. The gospel is, is not a contractual agreement, is it? Have you noticed this? Jesus isn't saying, here, sign here on the dotted line. Jesus was under no compulsion. He was under no obligation to come to the town of Bethany that day. He came freely to raise Lazarus from the dead. He wasn't made to. He didn't have to. He came freely. In fact, it could even be said that Jesus died on the cross without knowing that anybody would ever respond to his free gift of salvation. He wasn't saying, if I do this for you, then you need to do this for me. There was no obligation. There was no compulsion. There was no contractual agreement. There was no sign here, please. God gave up his son freely. Jesus gave up his life freely. And in this story, we can see that Mary gave up her worship freely. She was under no compulsion. 
She was under no obligation in this scene we can tell. Nobody made her, nobody pressured her. Hey, Mary, make sure you go and get that gift and pour it out on the feet of Jesus. This was of her free will. She took it and she freely poured it out on the feet of Jesus. And furthermore, she did not say, Jesus, now that I've done this for you, you do this for me. She freely gave up of herself. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Mozart. I can't remember the name of the the film. It's on the tip of my tongue. But at the very start of the film, there is this character called Salieri. And he wants to be the greatest composer there ever was. And he had a faith. So he made an agreement with God at the very beginning of the film. And he says, God, if you would just make me the greatest composer, then I will give you my chastity. So he grows in his ability to compose, and he becomes a famous composer in his own right. And he, he keeps his part of the agreement. He, he manages his chastity. And then along comes this hotshot called Mozart, who is supremely gifted and talented, yet he is all over the place. He has no regard for God. He has no regard for his chastity. He is living however he wants. And he goes down as the greatest composer potentially of all time, arguably. Salieri is so upset with God over this Mozart character that he ends up a bitter and twisted man in his old age. Why? Because he made a contractual agreement with God and said, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. This is not the way of the gospel. The gospel tells us that God freely gave and you are under no compulsion no obligation to even respond to this free gift of salvation. In fact, the gospel is entirely unfair. It goes out to the highways and to the byways, seeking out anybody who would receive it and accept it. But today, God asks you to come before him freely, under no obligation, under no compulsion, but of your free will, And if you would, say, God, I'm thankful for everything that you've given me. Here's my life. I give it freely. I'm not giving it because you'll bless me in return. I'm I'm giving it because I know that you're God and I want to honor you with my life. And I know that you've died for me and I And I'm so thankful for your grace and your goodness. In fact, it's it's actually unbelievable that you would accept me. I freely give without any expectation of return, God. I give you everything that I got. The gospel teaches us that we can come freely before God today. And this is what Mary has got to teach us in the context of preparation, in the context 
of God preparing you, of us preparing ourselves for what God has in store for us.